This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Ghost Story Every October here at the Word of the Week, we have a tradition of dispensing with our usual fare of discussing demons, monsters, myths, legends, and classic stories, and instead focus on discussing demons, monsters, myths, legends, and classic stories that are kind of, you know, spooky. Okay, so we're basically doing the same thing we do all the time. But we focus on stories you'd see in horror movies, and monsters you'd dress up as for Halloween. It's a tradition. And traditions are important, even if they don't always make a whole lot of sense today. And when it comes to the spooky, the scary, and the horrible, we here at the Word of the Week are as traditional as they come. We know that kids today won't waste their time on any horror story that doesn't have tentacles that stretch through six different space-time dimensions and shatter your psyche. Or on vampires who aren't covered in tattoos and body piercing and seducing innocents and secret nightclubs in the heart of Chicago that cater exclusively to creatures of the night. But to us... Horror traditions don't get any more traditional than the swapping of scary stories around a campfire on a cool October night. Or scaring the bejesus out of your sisters with some terrifying tale in a dark room while your parents think you're asleep. So, for the month of October, we're devoting ourselves to ghost stories, tales of spirits and specters, of haunted houses and phantom ships, of spooky fun around flickering campfires as the year dies and the winter approaches. Spooky, harmless fun. Well, mostly harmless. See, the tradition of telling stories, especially scary stories, around a campfire is actually a lot older than you might think. And it's rooted a lot more firmly in the human psyche than you might imagine. At least, according to some anthropologists. Anthropologists like Polly W. Weissner. See, she had an interesting question about campfires, and she went all the way to Botswana and Namibia to find the answers. The thing is that fire was kind of a big thing in the development of human civilization. Once we were able to harness and control the power of fire, we could use it for all sorts of things. We could use it to keep warm, we could use it to scare away predators, and we could use it to cook. And cooking was particularly important, as we once discussed a long time ago in an episode about pies. See, cooking drastically altered the nutritional value of the food we ate, it made it easier to chew and digest, and there's evidence that apart from allowing more people to live on smaller amounts of food, over the course of hundreds of thousands of years... This also allowed the human digestive tract to shrink. The digestive tract is kind of a hog. It takes a lot of energy to digest food and unlock the nutritional energy contained therein. Some biologists have argued that the adoption of cooking allowed our bodies to focus less energy on building complex digestive systems and more energy on building complex brains. Essentially, they argue that it is cooking that allowed humans to become human. Now, there's been a lot of arguments about just how long human beings have been using fire. The oldest good, solid evidence archaeologists have comes from the Qasem Caves in Israel and dates back around 300,000 to 400,000 years. 
And then there's some other evidence that suggests that we might have been using fire even longer than that. For example, there's some evidence from the Zhukudian cave in China of fire usage by Homo erectus, our straight-backed ancestor, about a million years ago. But the problem is, a lot of that evidence was discounted because the site has been contaminated, and it appears that some of the things they thought were ancient campfires might actually have been owl poop fires. Seriously, under the right conditions, large deposits of owl droppings can catch fire. Well, not just owl droppings. Once dung dries out, it burns really well. So the owl poop in the cave might have caught fire a million years ago and tricked us into thinking early hominids were roasting marshmallows in there. That said, there is some recent evidence of charred animal bones and wood ash that may be between one and two million years old in the Wunderwerk Cave of South Africa. That's an Afrikaans word that means miracle. So, humans and their ancestors have been using fire for anywhere between 300,000 and 2 million years. But what does this have to do with Polly W. Weissner? Well, she was curious about something else to do with fire. It's clear that fire completely changed the biology and diet of the human species, but what is less clear is what effect it had on our culture. And she had a theory that fire let us stay up late and sit around and talk and that that changed everything. So she decided to figure out, and measure, just how much it might have changed. And she published her results in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America in 2014. So what was she doing in Africa? Well, she was living among the Jukhon people? We're not honestly really sure how to pronounce that. It's got some weird critical marks in it, and a slash, and, and a, an apostrophe, and, and we don't have any idea. The Juhon are hunter-gatherers of southern Africa, who have had no significant contact with outside cultures or societies, and who have basically lived the same way for thousands of years. Such uncontacted tribes are often studied by anthropologists because they give insights into human psychological, social, and cultural development unaffected by the diffusion of ideas between cultures and the huge kick in technological, social, cultural development such diffusion brings. And what Weissner did was to listen to everything that Juhon talked about during the day when they were going out about their daily routines of hunting and or gathering, and then at night when everyone gathered together around the fire to chat, which is something humans couldn't do before fire was a thing. The night was cold and dangerous, and when night fell, you found shelter, huddled up, and slept until the sun rose and banished the proverbial creepers and zombies and pigmen. Or whatever. Anyway, during the day, she found that about 40% of all the conversations the Jew Hone engaged in were work or property related. About 35% were whining and complaining about stuff. Seriously and about 15% of conversations were focused on joking around. At night, she found over 80% of all talk was spent telling stories. And most of these stories were just stories. They weren't really informational. They were entertaining. Some were funny, some were sentimental, many were exciting. But they were just stories. And Weissner theorizes that the social development of humanity started right there, around the campfire, at night, with the sharing of stories. 
But we're not just talking about campfire stories here. We're talking about a specific type of campfire story. We're talking about ghost stories, especially around holidays like Christmas. Yes. See, the tradition of telling ghost stories around a warm fire didn't really start with Halloween at all. In the Victorian era, it was all the rage to gather around a warm fire on Christmas Eve or go down to the warm local pub and share stories of strange spirits and ghostly noises. Though that tradition and most of the Christmas traditions themselves are not as old as you'd think. And it only recently came back from the dead. See, for a long time in Europe, Christmas was actually more about the winter solstice than it was about the religious holiday or the commercial holiday. And in fact, a lot of Halloween traditions actually have their origins in the winter solstice. The days of midwinter are, of course, the shortest and darkest days of the year, and they were traditionally the days when the worlds of the living and the dead were closest together. And when those old pagan traditions collided with the Christian traditions in Northern Europe, a weird mix of a holiday emerged. Part pagan ghost holiday, part hope for the coming of spring, and part religious observance. Except it wasn't actually that big. And by the time of the Victorian era, it was in a steep decline. In England, where Christmas traditions had been the strongest, the decline of Christmas had started with Oliver Cromwell. We've talked about him before. There was a big fight between the monarchy of England and the parliament over who actually answered to whom. Remember? And Oliver Cromwell won. Initially, he won for the parliament. But then as Lord Protector and a devoted Puritan, he decided to clean up England and the English government and rededicate the country to the service of God. And one of the things he did to get rid of all the hedonism of the day was to get rid of holidays. So the Christmas slash solstice with all its feasting and singing and ghost stories was right out the door. But then the Industrial Revolution came along and a few things all happened at once. First was the rise of consumerism. People wanted to buy stuff and businesses wanted to sell stuff, mass-produced stuff. And so, businesses started to glom onto the fact that you could convince people to buy stuff if you gave them an excuse. Like a holiday. Second, mass manufacturing also brought out the invention of a new way to show your love for the people in your life. The greeting card. Seriously? And the third thing was a ghost story written by a guy who was running out of cash and afraid that his fame had peaked before he'd changed the world. Yes, we're talking about Charles Dickens and A Christmas Carol. Now, by 1843, Charles Dickens was a pretty famous name. And after making a name for himself with some charming little serials called The Posthumous Papers of the Pickwick Club he decided he wanted to use his writing ability to do some social good. See, the Industrial Revolution had brought some big change to England, but it wasn't all positive. As people rushed to the cities, overcrowding and poor sanitation led to massive outbreaks of illness. Pollution exacerbated the health problems, and widespread poverty forced people into intolerable working conditions, working long hours in dangerous conditions for very little pay. And when Dickens started to follow reports about the exploitation of child labor, he grew particularly incensed. And so, he started to highlight those social problems in his novels, like Oliver Twist and Nicholas Nickleby. The problem was, his popularity was waning. 
His books weren't selling very well after his initial flurry of popularity. And his bitter attitude towards certain people, like Americans, was alienating readers. He was on his way down. He needed to do something that would sell, something big, something that would carry his message in a positive way. Something in which a greedy business mogul would be given a chance at redemption and learn that it was the duty of employers not to exploit their employees, but to show an interest in their well-being. That would be beneficial to everyone. And so, thanks to greedy businessmen, the invention of greeting cards, and a failing author desperate to send out one last positive message before fading into obscurity, the commercial Christmas holiday was invented. And for a long time, it kept the trappings of ghost stories around a warm fire. After Dickens rushed a Christmas carol to publication, other authors followed suit quickly with their own Christmas spooky stories, authors like Algernon Blackwood and E.F. Benson. Which is why Andy Williams' classic Christmas carol, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, contains a line promising scary ghost stories, along with tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. But we digress. We really digress. Charles Dickens may have helped invent Christmas with his fireside ghost story, but he didn't invent the ghost story. And the ghost story is an old invention, not quite millions of years old, but at least thousands of years old. There's the story of King Saul of Israel asking a witch to summon the ghost of Samuel to help him through an upcoming war with the Philistines, as well as several other biblical ghost stories. And there's a pretty early story of the chain-rattling ghost who won't move on, told by Pliny the Younger, in around 100 CE. But we're going to hold on to that one until we talk about haunted houses. What we actually want to talk about are a couple of more modern ghost stories and a pair of more modern ghosts. Specifically, the ghost of Al Capone and the ghost that scared Al Capone to death. Possibly. See, it's sort of a classic feature of ghost stories that a person's spirit could live on in some form or another and haunt the living. Of course it is. That's literally what a ghost is. The spirit of a dead person who won't leave you alone. And there have been a lot of ghost sightings of particularly historical ghosts. And one historical figure that likes to show up from time to time to bug the living is famous Chicago gangster Al Capone. There are numerous accounts, and make of them what you will, of visitors to Al Capone's grave seeing a spectral vision of the mobster, particularly those who have come to deface the site or show their disrespect for the gangster. And supposedly, his prison cell in the now-defunct Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary on Alcatraz Island in San Francisco is sometimes filled with ghostly banjo music. And lots of us have heard those stories. But few know that Al Capone himself was haunted until the day he died by a tormenting spirit that terrified him beyond imagining. Of course, his terror was likely amplified by a sexually transmitted disease chewing up his brain, but it still counts as a ghost story. Now, Al Capone is one of the most famous American mobsters in history. Hopefully you know that much. 
and he made his fortune in Chicago during the Prohibition era when federal law banned the sale and production of alcoholic beverages anywhere in the country. At the height of his criminal career, Capone made $60 million a year selling and smuggling illegal liquor. But he was also famous for his terrible temper and ruthless brutality. In fact, that's how he got his start in crime. Or so the story goes. Capone was a pretty good student in his Brooklyn elementary school, but he started to struggle around the sixth grade, and as a result, he began cutting school, and his attitude toward education started to wane. One day, his teacher hit him for being insolent. This was the early 1900s, so that was a thing teachers did sometimes. But Capone punched the teacher right back, which was not something students did. The principal took Capone into his office and gave Capone a beating as punishment, and Capone left the school and never returned. I mean, you can see why. After dropping out of school, Capone met and started working for the man who would become his criminal mentor, Johnny Torrio. After a scrape in a bar, Capone ended up with three scars on his face, which earned him the nickname Scarface, which he hated, incidentally. Anyway, the Capones moved to Chicago. Torrio headed a major gambling and prostitution ring there. Then liquor was outlawed, and Capone and Torrio got into a new business. Torrio left the business and went back to Italy after an attempt on his life, and Capone was in charge. For a while there, Capone was actually a bit of a folk hero. He was a lavish playboy, a celebrity, and he kept a high profile. And people appreciated the way he was sticking it to the government for an unpopular law. But it all came crashing down when Capone ordered two rival gangsters killed and a popular public prosecutor was caught in the crossfire and brutally gunned down. Violence exploded onto the streets of Chicago, and the public clamored for something to be done. Capone, realizing that he was in big trouble now that he'd lost public opinion, killed a public prosecutor, and violence was threatening to break out from every direction, tried to broker a peace between the gangs of Chicago to calm everything down. But the peace didn't last. A rival gangster, Bugs Moran, made an attempt on Capone's life. Capone responded by sending his men, disguised as police, to open fire on a public garage where Moran and several of his men were holed up. The bloody St. Valentine's Day massacre was the last straw for a furious public and exacerbated the situation with already beleaguered government officials. Capone was arrested and sent to prison, and his health, due to an infection of syphilis, degenerated in prison until finally he was released to live out his remaining years under house arrest until the illness claimed him. Now that's the story everyone knows, but there's a little more to it. See, there was this guy, James Jimmy Clark, at the garage on Valentine's Day. He was a low-level goon and Bugs Moran's brother-in-law. Basically a nobody, right? Except he wouldn't leave Capone alone after the massacre. It started in his cell in Philadelphia, where Capone was held after an arrest on weapons charges. Capone would reportedly have late-night arguments with someone named Jimmy, or wake up screaming at Jimmy to let him be. Other prisoners heard the exchanges. Capone was released, but he was still haunted by Jimmy, 
He was so desperate to be free of Jimmy's ghost that Capone even hired a psychic to get rid of the ghost. But it didn't work. And Jimmy's torment only grew. Often, Capone's bodyguards would hear the gangster screaming and rush into the room, only to find that Capone was alone. And when he finally went to prison for tax evasion, by the way, he was never convicted of murder, in Alcatraz, Jimmy followed him there too. His release for good behavior was actually because he was so crazed with terror and had degenerated to such a degree that the officials at the prison just wanted to get him out of there and figured he was one step away from the grave anyway. But not all ghost stories are as dark and violent and riddled with bullets and STDs. And not all ghost stories are so well understood. Take, for example, the ghost who supposedly haunts the Willard Library in Evansville, Indiana. The library itself is a big, gothic building, the sort of place you'd expect a ghost to haunt. And since the 1930s, visitors have reported seeing a strange apparition roaming the halls at night. A weird, veiled lady in gray, who has been dubbed uncreatively the Gray Lady. While her identity is a mystery, some think she's the spirit of the daughter of the library's founder, who is upset because he, Willard Carpenter, left his fortune to the library instead of to her. She even sued the library to get her father's estate for herself. Anyway, the library is pretty proud of its resident ghost. You can even watch a camera feed from the library online in the hopes of catching a glimpse of her yourself. And if the story of a gray female ghost haunting a big gothic library sounds familiar, well, that's probably because the gray lady of Willard Library was likely the inspiration for the greatest modern ghost story of them all. We're speaking, of course, of the 1984 Ivan Reitman film written by and starring Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, along with Bill Murray, Sigourney Weaver, Ernie Hudson, and Rick Moranis. Now, the thing is, Ghostbusters was really Dan Aykroyd's baby. And it came about for two reasons. First, the guy is actually obsessed with the supernatural. He loves ghost stories, and so does his family. His great-grandfather was a psychic medium and spiritualist. His grandfather was a telephone engineer who tried to invent a way to call the dead on the phone. His father published several books on the paranormal. So he's got ghosts in his blood. But Aykroyd also considered himself a comedy maverick, and part of a generation that was redefining comedy as part of the founding members of the Saturday Night Live cast. And after reading an article about quantum physics and the paranormal, Aykroyd conceived of a story about using modern technology to trap ghosts, and used that as the center of a ghost story. See, lots of comedy teams did ghost stories back in the day, the day being the 1940s, and Aykroyd was a fan of the classics. Abbott and Costello did Hold That Ghost, Bob Hope did The Ghost Breakers, and so on. Aykroyd wrote up the script and presented it to Ivan Reitman, who thought the script had promising ideas despite being an utter mess. Reitman suggested bringing in Harold Ramis to help with a rewrite. They secured funding, though no one really believed in the project, and the movie was rewritten and made very quickly. Sadly, Aykroyd's friend and first choice for a co-star, James Belushi, died as a result of his protracted drug addiction. But fellow SNL alum Bill Murray stepped up to fill the role. The production was fraught with other problems as well. 
and the studios were growing increasingly nervous as the project sucked up a huge amount of money. Especially expensive and complicated was the climactic ending where Dan Aykroyd's character, Ray Stance, tries to imagine the most harmless thing he could think of to force the demonic gozer into a benign form and ends up fighting a massive commercial mascot for a marshmallow company. Because the most benign, harmless, happy thing Ray could think of was sitting around a campfire, roasting marshmallows and telling ghost stories. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.